Hey, it's Rachel, and this is Up for Sunday. Well, I think the last time I talked to you, we were uh, we just escaped the Moroccan police. That's right. <laughs> this is the third part of our series with Ari Shapiro, following people who are migrating from the African continent to Europe. Back in October, Ari and his team spent weeks traveling through Senegal and Morocco before finally arriving in mainland Spain. For so many of the migrants Ari had met, this was the dream, the long-awaited destination, the end of their journey. So I wanted to know what was life like for the people who had made it to Spain. So days before he returned to D.C., I called Ari one last time. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Well, we've we've reached the end of the trip. My bags are packed. I'm flying home tomorrow. We've been through three countries, at least seven different locations within those countries. Yeah. We've conducted interviews in five or six languages. Huh. I have lost track. Bombra, Wolof, English, French, Spanish, Arabic. That's six. With the help of many mighty help of translators many and mighty interpreters on the ground. Yeah, Translators and interpreters without whom we would never be able to do this kind of reporting. For sure. So um, where do we start? Uh, so after we left the Moroccan city of Nador, we returned to the Spanish enclave city of Melilla. We stayed there for a night and then got on a plane and flew to Seville, Sevilla, in yeah. the south of mainland Spain. From there, we drove west to this rural province about an hour away called Huelva. And Huelva is strawberry fields forever. <laughs> like actual strawberry yeah, fields. Like literally, <laughs> literally. Huelva is known as the strawberry capital of Spain. Huh. And we drove to this historic town near the coast called Palos de la Frontera. As you enter, there's a, a traffic roundabout, and in the center, there is a huge statue of a bright red strawberry sliced in half. Okay. Like, if you look at a Google Earth image of this part of Spain, it is all rows of strawberry fields wow. stretching for miles. And by the way, as a side note, this is the place that Columbus's ships, the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, left from. And so all over town, there are like hotels and restaurants and parks named after them. Named after the Nina, the Pinta, the oh, Santa yeah, Maria. Yeah, okay. like Restaurant Nina, Hotel Pinta, you know, the Santa Maria Park, okay. truly. And we got there right around what in the U.S. we call Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day. In Spain, it is Dia de la Hispanidad. It is like an overt celebration of the Spanish Empire. And uh, they have not reassessed it in quite the same way that we have reassessed Columbus Day. Uh, yeah. Like, flags everywhere celebration of this man who went in boats to another far-off place as we were there talking to people who had, from a far-off place, come, many of them in boats, to Spain. Hmm. These people being the sub-Saharan African migrants who are working in all of those strawberry fields around Huelva. Wow. And life really revolves around the strawberry harvest. Like in that town of Palos de la Frontera, the population doubles when it's time to harvest the strawberries. We were there during the quiet season when, when people are planting the seedlings. And so we went to one of these farms, and you can picture raised planting beds covered in, it looks like black trash bag plastic, sort of. And people bent over those rows, punching a hole in the plastic and shoving in seedlings thousands a day. Over their heads are these big metal hoops so that during the hotter months you can stretch canvas across the hoops to shade the strawberry plants. And the people working in the fields come from Gambia, Mali, Sudan, and Senegal, many of the sub-Saharan African countries 
that we had been meeting people from on the previous parts of this journey. Yeah. We were at this farm and these guys are going down this row, planting the seedlings in these raised beds. They do 3,500 seedlings a day. Can we talk to you for a minute? And this guy says, he's from Senegal. And I ask him, where are you from? And he says, I'm from San Luis. Mm -hmm. And there was a day in San Luis that we were doing an interview and outside we heard the sound on the beach. There were these guys hauling in and organizing the fishing nets and singing a song as they did it. And so, you know, perfect for radio, we recorded the song. So did you play the song for him? Yeah, he says, I'm from San Luis. I said, oh, where in San Luis? He said, Gendar, which is the beach where these guys were hauling in the nets. So I pull out my phone and I find the video and I show it to him. And this huge grin spreads across his face. <laughs> and he says, <laughs> That's my family. That's your family? <laughs> you know? It's San Luis, yeah, si. Gendar. Si. Your name is Ah, you're from there. And I said, literally, like your relatives? And he said, no, 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 we're all family there. Those are my people. And it was just this moment of, you know, we're thousands of miles away. But in that moment, it was like there was no distance at all. This guy, his name is Abdullai Baye, and he's got a foothold in Europe now. Like, he has his papers, his work permit, and that means he can work here seasonally. In the off-season, he can go back to Senegal to reunite with his family. But, you know, there are as many immigration stories as there are immigrants. And we mostly met people who are still somewhere in the middle of that process. Ari told me that migrants who don't have work visas live in a kind of purgatory. They themselves are very far from home, but they are also very far from living the dream that they and their families hope to realize here. I mean, you can imagine the strain that comes from waiting over the course of years, not knowing what will happen, but still trying to make the best of the situation you're in. And I could really feel this mix of worry and hope when I visited these communities of farm workers who still don't have their papers for the most part. They end up in their, well, these they're called settlements, and they are sort of camps right around the farms. And they're tough places. And these communities have grown over 25 years or so in southern Spain. And they are not tent camps because the houses that people live in are nicer than tents. It's like a concrete floor and then wooden pallets hammered together and covered with tarps to keep the rain out. The houses don't have running water or electricity, but people have gotten incredibly creative, hooking up solar panels so they can charge their phones. There was one settlement we visited where people have created a community center. And this is this kind of warehouse space right by the settlement where there are washer dryers, Wi-Fi, power strips, um, showers, and so all the stuff that you can't get in the settlement, people have kind of created for themselves in this community center that's crowdfunded. So we walked around the settlement and we tried talking to people. A lot of people didn't want to be interviewed. They didn't want to be photographed. No camera. Radio. 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 
finally, I was able to sit down uh, with our photographer, Ricky Shryock, interpreting, and with one young man who told us not to use his name. I-, I thought maybe he was worried about getting in trouble with the authorities, but he said no, it was a different reason. No, 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 you know, if you if one is living in a great a good house, a nice house, yeah, it's okay. Uh, but if you're living in a camp or in a house like the, in a house like this, and then the family sees how you're living, they're going to say, well, it wasn't worth it to go to Europe in the first place. Uh. Yeah, he doesn't want his family back in Senegal to know how bad his life working without papers in Spain is. And he's been in the country for four years already. Meanwhile, his family thinks he's got a good life. Now, Rachel, the immigrants are overwhelmingly men. But we did meet one woman named Hope Joseph. Thank you so much for talking with us. No, no problem. She invited us inside of her house built from wood pallets. And I could tell right away that she had worked hard to make this place feel like a home. No, nobody. I live here. Okay. This is beautiful. You have so many like pink and blue and flowered sheets on the wall. Your color? This is my favorite. The blue? Yeah. Yeah, nice. Hope told me the person she thinks about most is her son. He's 10 years old. She still calls him her baby. Yeah. I used to call him all the time. All the time. Video to see face. Yeah. Um, what do you say when you talk to him? Mm, he said, no, you know, my baby is a little baby. The other day he said, why are you going to come back? I said, I don't have document. If I have document, you know, it's a little baby. Think maybe it's just from here to here. He said, why are you coming back? I said, wait a little time, maybe December. Mm-hmm. When I have document, I can go for now. No. It's been four years, right? Mm, yeah, almost. It's been four years of waiting for her papers. And meanwhile... Every day, she feels the danger. She's just on edge, living in this settlement, exacerbated by the fact that she's a woman on her own. According to folks we interviewed who live there, people just kind of go crazy, wondering when they're ever going to get their papers, when they're going to see their family again. People are cooking over propane and things catch fire. They drink too much, they get in fights, and sometimes they set fires to things, and people have died in these fires that happen in these settlements. Mm. It's just terrifying to go to sleep because you don't know if you're going to be awoken by a fire. Just yesterday, around 2 o'clock in the night, there is fire here. Everybody have to wake up and stand so that when you get inside your home, you run away. That's it. Now, Spanish law says people are eligible for permanent residency after they've been working three years, as long as they meet certain conditions. But the reality for these workers is that it often takes years longer. And there can be different reasons for that. It's specific to each person's case. Like some people told us that farmers were denying them the paperwork attesting that they had worked there. Others have had run-ins with police that might set back the clock. So these people can't get work permits to be there legally, even for a short period of time. So they end up staying for longer illegally yeah. because the work is still there, yeah. right? Does the Spanish government recognize that there's a problem there then? They do. The Spanish government recognizes that they have a problem here. But the third plank of this reporting project has been the rise of the right. You know, mm-hmm. we're looking at the connection between climate change, global migration, 
and the rise of far-right political leaders, which is happening not only in Spain, but all over the world, all over Europe, the United States, the Americas, Asia. And this is very closely tied to fears about migration and hardline approaches to migration. Right. So all that um, despondency that leads to fighting or or drinking and dangerous living situations that ends up like reaffirming the the far right message about what immigrants do to your society. You put your finger on it. That's the talking point of the far right. All these other parties say they're humanitarians and say they care about human rights, but they're allowing people to come to our country and live like this. If you elect us, we won't allow it. Mm. That's that's literally what the guy said to us from the far right Vox party. Coming up, Ari talks to the Wilva chapter president of the Vox Party. Then he goes to Madrid, where he meets a very different kind of politician. Hey, we're back with Up First Sunday. Part of Ari's goal in this whole project was to understand how the rise in migration is fueling support for far-right political parties in Europe. He managed to get an interview with the president for the Huelva chapter of Vox, which is this ultra-conservative populist party in Spain. Our producer Miguel Macias interpreted. We're not against regulated migration. We're against illegal migration, which is being favored by these globalist parties. So in Senegal, we spoke with many people who wanted to come legally to Spain, and they were not able to get a visa to come work here and return to Senegal. So they said they had to go illegally. And so would you like to see a larger number of work visas to allow legal migration so that people can do the labor that is needed and then return home? Um, we're in favor of legal immigration, regulated, and of course we're in favor of people who come here and want to become part of our society and culture and not build parallel societies. We also think that uh, we should make sure that these countries are able to develop so that people are not forced to uh, abandon their country. Other parties accuse us of being anti-immigration. That's not true. We want immigration that is good for the country and good for the people who come to this country. We spoke to the man who oversees the migrant centers in Melilla and Ciuta, and he said, immigration is like water. If you block one path, it will find a different path. But there is a different view, which is if you put up enough walls, if you make a naval blockade, if you turn a fence into an electrified fence and build a moat, there is something you can do to stop it. Which view do you hold? In the world... There's 700 million people in poverty in the world. They will be pleased to come to Spain and to come to Europe. Pero si permitimos que vengan 700 millones de personas a Europa, estaremos todos en la pobreza más absoluta. But if we allow 700 million people to come to Europe, we will be in poverty. All of us will be in poverty. 
es mejor. Eh, eh, entiendo yo que nuestros países sigan funcionando como hasta ahora, generando riqueza, y creo que es la mejor manera de poderles ayudar. La mejor estrategia es ayudar a nuestros países a generar riqueza. And that's the best way we can help the rest of the world. I, I understand what you're saying. My question is a little bit different, which is practically, do you believe it is possible to stop the water from flowing somewhere? Eh, tiene que ser parada o estamos destruidos. <laughs> tiene que pararse. No hay, no hay más remedio. Eh, no podemos It has to be stopped. It has to be stopped. We don't have an option. Uh, if we allow 700 million people to come to Europe, our culture, our societies will be destroyed. That's just obvious. And Rachel, he said things that sounded so familiar to me, like immigration is a tool of globalists that are trying to create a new world order. He said it's the combination of the pro-immigrant agenda with the feminist agenda, with the LGBTQ agenda. These talking points, these are far-right talking points that people literally all over the globe are using. These are all tools in the hands of uh, globalists in order to build a new world order. This new world order involves destroying countries as they are today. The reason why I'm a member of Vox is because I think that important things are happening in the world and I want to defend certain values and my, my own country, Spain. This is so complicated, right? I mean, there's a lot of xenophobia and explicit racism in the immigration debate in Europe and around the world, frankly. But at the same time, individual countries face real challenges when it comes to crafting fair and workable immigration policies. And in the middle of it are all these people who are stuck in this in-between. But do they themselves have a voice in any of this? Well... I want to answer that question in the city of Madrid. Let's go. Madrid's the place where the big themes we've been talking about all sort of converge. I mean, it is the seat of power in Spain. It is where the policies are written that build fences around the city of Melilla and send military ships to patrol the waters off the coast of Senegal. It is where some African migrants first arrive and try to squeeze out a living until they get their papers. And it's where immigrants who've succeeded can gain some amount of power to try to influence all of these policies for the betterment of their communities. And that brings me to a man named Serene Mbaye. He made the journey from Senegal in 2006 in a pirogue. He's now in his late 40s. He is a Spanish citizen and a legendary figure because he's one of the few black people to have succeeded in modern Spanish politics. I'd spoken to him over the phone before making this trip, and so I was really excited to finally meet him in the center of Madrid, just outside of City Hall. It's so good to meet you, finally. How are you? Hello. You know, he's this tall, skinny guy, dressed casually, even though he is a deputy in the Madrid Assembly, which is sort of like being a state senator. And he is the only person in the assembly who came to Spain without papers, worked for years as a Montero. What's Montero? Oh, a Montero is like, they're a constant presence in Madrid, also Barcelona. But you see them with their blankets selling 
soccer jerseys or tennis shoes or knockoff handbags splayed out on the street or a plaza yeah. or a subway station. When, when police approach, they scoop everything and they run off as fast as they can so as not to get arrested. Serene actually was arrested four times during the years that he worked as a Montero. Do you remember the first time you heard the word Montero? Fui a verlo, de hecho. Es que salí a pasear con ellos, la gente con quien vivía. Llegué a Atocha y vi que la gente estaba... Yes, it was after he had made the journey from Senegal and he had arrived in Madrid and he saw all of these people who looked like him sitting in front of blankets selling counterfeit goods. And whoever he was with said, oh yeah, those are all undocumented people. And he thought, what a degrading way to have to live. And at the same moment, he thought, that's what I'm going to have to do. And for years, he did. Eventually, he got his papers. He did a variety of odd jobs. He worked in agriculture. He worked in home nursing care. He opened a restaurant and eventually was elected to the Madrid General Assembly. Sí, por lo que decía, yo no estoy en política por querer estar en política. No he buscado estar en política, tener un puesto. I didn't look for uh, to get into politics. It was politics that came to me. Uh, and uh, it's an, um, my job is to bring the reality that I see to politics. En los programas políticos y ser representado. So we went to the neighborhood where immigrants tend to live called Lava Pies, and it was a completely different experience. It's such a huge contrast from where we met Serene outside of the assembly, where he was the only black person on the street and getting stared at everywhere he went. And now it's like not only black people, they're Asian people, people from South Asia, people from Latin America. It's just a completely different feeling in this neighborhood. And one of his friends said to us, you can't go anywhere with Serene because he will stop to talk to everybody he meets for 30 minutes and you will never get to your destination. And that was absolutely <laughs> true. He is, somebody described him as the Malcolm X of African immigrants in Spain. And I really got that sense, no matter what somebody needed, whether it was a sick relative back in Senegal or help bringing somebody over to Spain or a medical bill, like, they come to Serene. This person has a medical bill, this person has tuition, this person needs water, this person needs electricity. Eso era gran parte de lo que hemos hablado, porque era el tema de, porque yo, estando aquí... Being here, I take care of... Uh, my family's uh, expenses, my son's expenses, and all the expenses of the country of Senegal. Because basically, everybody comes to him asking for help. And I said, do you ever just say no? And he said, I, I try not to. Do you feel like you are living a dream come true, or would you describe it in a different way? Yo, la verdad, no era mi sueño todo esto. Uh, I don't think this is my dream come true. Uh, this is what we would call destiny in life. And uh, if I had to say what my dream come true would be, would be that there was no suffering for anybody.
my question, Ari, is has he been able to make a difference in this role? I mean, is he just one parliament member screaming into the wind or does he feel like his presence there has been able to affect policy changes that would make things better for the migrants who are living in these settlements? I think he'd say that representation matters and having somebody there to speak for people who often don't have a voice matters and bringing the voices of his neighborhood to the assembly matters. But he also told us that every single time he gets up to speak in the Spanish assembly, somebody gives a speech about illegal immigration. Somebody gives a speech about undocumented migrants from Africa. He says the racism is not subtle, it is overt, and it is constant. So there's still a long way to go. Serene's journey isn't over. Uh, His term as a deputy in the Madrid assembly ends this year, and it's not clear what will happen as he continues to work in this very public way advocating for immigrants from sub-Saharan Africa. We're going to continue following Serene's story, and uh, we'll tell you more of his story later on this year. Hmm. It's been it's been fascinating for me to just absorb the stories of all these individuals at different different parts of this journey, and, and Serene's story in particular about someone who's actually made it. But can you explain, Ari, what the what the political climate is like for migrants who are in Spain right now? Vox, this far-right anti-immigrant party, is not a majority, but it is influential, and they have shifted the terms of the debate. I think it's very similar to the climate across Europe, in the United States. You know, Vox had a Make Spain Great Again campaign. And so I think what we're seeing is this movement where a far-right group, even if they don't have the majority, can sort of shift the center of gravity. Mm-hmm. We interviewed a Spanish activist who said the reason the right is gaining so much power is that they're able to tell a story about community, and stories about community have power. And the story that they tell is a story of us against them, outsiders coming to harm our community. But it's a story about community. And so she said the only way to overcome this is to tell a different story about community. And through this reporting process, I have met so many individuals who, yes, are in the process of migrating, but they have a story that no one else has. When you think about the individual at the center of that, a person who is migrating, it's a much different experience, Mm -hmm. and your conclusions might be a lot different. Our photographer, Ricky Shryock, who has lived in West Africa for years, she lives in Senegal, um, started asking people a question that I really loved, which was, when you arrived in Europe, who was the first person you called? Because it's so much more intimate than how did you feel, you know, and who is worried that they didn't make the journey alive? Mm -hmm. And who did they need to tell that they had arrived intact? Mm -hmm. And that question elicited so many just sort of beautiful, heartbreaking, personal, passionate stories. Yeah, can you tell me one? Well, Serene told us that when he got to this migrant center where he was held for processing, somebody had money to make a phone call, but got off the phone before he had used up all the minutes. So Serene grabbed the phone, called home, his sister picked up, and he had only enough time to say, 
I'm here. I'm in the Canary Islands. I'm alive. I'm in police custody. I'm in good health. And then the call cut off. Ah. And then it was a week later until he could finally call back. And he said, and then, boy, did my mother yell at me. Because he didn't tell anyone that he was going. He hadn't even decided on the day he would go. He had just decided he needed to get out of Senegal. And one day he saw a bunch of people climbing on a boat and he said, that's it. Hmm. I'm getting on that boat. He didn't take anything. He didn't tell anyone. He was gone. And so you imagine that phone call that's like, hey, mom, I'm alive. Click. And then days later, it's like, okay, mom, I'm in Spain. And she's like, how could you do this to us? Well, you know, the, I'm laughing, it, but like... It's awful, the waiting. It's so universal. Yeah. You know, Rachel, as we set out on this trip, I talked to Kaylee Ober of the group Refugees International, and she used a term that stuck with me. She said, climate change is a vulnerability multiplier. And what she meant is that When people are already under pressure from poverty, corruption, overfishing, whatever those factors may be, climate change makes it worse. And as the planet continues to heat up, we're going to hear more stories about this, about people from Bangladesh going west, people from Central America going north, people from sub-Saharan Africa going to Europe. And I think that in order to understand what's happening, we have to allow ourselves to see this experience through the eyes of the people making that difficult decision, to see what this looks like from the perspective of those being forced to leave. Thank you very much for bringing us the stories of all these people who've been making this journey. We so appreciate it. It's been an honor. Thanks, Ari. Thanks, Rachel. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. That was my friend and colleague Ari Shapiro with his reporting from Huelva and Madrid, Spain. This episode was produced by Justine Yan with help from Miguel Macias. Jenny Schmidt is our editor. The Climate Migration Series for Up First Sunday is edited by Jenny Schmidt and Justine Yan with reporting by Ari Shapiro, Miguel Macias, Noah Caldwell, Matt Ozug, and Ian Bjor. Special thanks to the All Things Considered team that made this collaboration possible, including executive producer Sammy Yenigan, editor Sarah Handel, producer Lee Hale, and intern Malika Sashadri. Thanks also to photographer and interpreter Ricky Shryock. Digital support from producer Audrey Wynn and visuals editor Grace Widiatmaja. Editorial support from Luis Treas. James Willits mastered this episode, scoring from Audio Network and Blue Dot Sessions. Our show is produced by NPR's Enterprise Storytelling Unit. Liana Simstrom is the supervising producer, and Irene Noguchi is the executive producer. Anya Grunman is our vice president of programming. I'm Rachel Martin. Up First is back tomorrow with all the news you need to start your week. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you.